The same last year, just before the interest went to the interest went on. Welcome everyone to the Fallout Podcast. I think it's episode 66, aka Mere Sued Book Reviewers. Um, I've been threatening this for a while. We're going to have a stab at uh, seeing what we think about the Marquis Smith, er, quotes, autobiography, Renegade, written by uh, Mark Smith and his then his mate, Austin Collins. Um, bit of um, context in a minute, but first let's, let's say hello to the crew. Joined as always by Pip and Al. How are you chaps doing? Very good. Hi. Very good also. Good, good. Read the book. Look to the cover. A book. <laughs> Moving on. And and joined by two guests. So Ezra is not here this evening and I don't know if uh, Disco Stew's joined us. I don't think he is. And um, but we have uh, returning guests, uh, Danny No um, of uh, the Internet fame. <laughs> now coming back for his second round of fall podcasts. Danny, how are you doing? Yeah, uh, good. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Morning. 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 So you, you, you as, uh, as we were saying earlier, you've now been on the Puritans Guide, the uh, Old Brother hours, and uh, you did feature on on Steve's uh, Fall in a Five radio show. Yeah. Yeah. So, are there any others I'm missing? I, I don't, I don't think so. Set before yeah. I no, it's one of those weird things. You'll we'll we'll encounter one that's like on five hundred episodes at some point. You'll be like nobody's noticed it yet. And yeah, there's a lot of podcasts like that. Yeah. Yeah. And Integral Wizard Second Tier, Robert McLeod. Um, Fall New Boy. How you doing, Rob? New boy. <laughs> uh, I am verdant. What are other words for new? I'm doing well. Give us, I'm glad to be. Give here. us and waxing. You do know that new boy is secret code for everybody else to bully in a true fall fashion. Whipping boy. Just replace <laughs> my name. I'm just known as New Boy now. Okay. <laughs> well, let's kick off. So um the book itself for a bit of context seems it came out around 2010. 10. Uh, anyone correct me, Lanny, this if I'm wrong, but uh, seems like it was written. Um, seems like it was written during the recording or just after the recording of Reformation. That's very much on his mind. He's still smarting from the uh, bird whistle and leaving in him and um, spends an inordinate amount of time uh, shitting on those uh, lads. Uh, and um, yeah, anything to, to say before we jump in? Yeah, you can say about 2010, 2008. <laughs> okay. Right, then, almost <laughs> the right decade. Danny's here, everybody. Danny's <laughs> just thought I'd give you an easy one to start with, Danny. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, in the intro, he does shit on Pritchard and Co. For, for bailing on him and blames it on him being boiled as a kid. A prime example of uh, someone who can't handle being in the fall after a few pints. It uh, says he mostly needed him to take for Elaine to, uh, to be dropped off at Tesco. <laughs> He's not going to miss him that much. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking for to remind myself of this because I, I I've made more notes towards the end of the book, really. But um, when <laughs> just flicking through these, it's like the words that jump out is like box tick heaven for Marquis Smith, isn't it? You got Nazis, you got slagging off of like really famous groups, some sniping at some uh, ex members. It's like yeah, you know what a ride you're strapping him for with this book, now. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the 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 thing with this book 
is it 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 starts um with a lot of score settling doesn't it and 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 that is what this uh, the intro is um and because uh, i think um a few a couple uh, i think 2006 ben pritchard did an interview um which appeared all over the internet and which clearly riled smith substantially that he was still going on about it years later it was one of those um, uh, revelatory um, kind of uh, interviews where Ben was having a moan about the way the group were treated and what happened in America and everything. And and clearly this has rankled immensely. So what we don't really get a, a biography. We get an ex- extended rant against the, the former group. Um, he dismisses them entirely and puts the Reformation, the American group, Reformation era group, center stage. They're the greatest group he's ever had. Absolutely. That's the, yeah. that's the scene. That's the scene. He does. Um... As a newcomer, a new boy, if you will, to the band, this was a bizarre way to start because, yes, it certainly set a tone. It's like, okay, this is clearly what's hot on his mind at the moment, it seems. And then I guess just from like a literary perspective, which is probably the wrong way to approach this book at all, it was like, oh, clearly this is going to like tie back into this throughout the story and uh, or like throughout the tale arguably it does a bit talking obviously about the various iterations of the band <laughs> but for me by the time I finished the book it was just like oh he just wanted to slag off this old group promote the new group and then tell his life story there's like there's like two things going. it felt to me like two drunks in charge of a car a lot of this like you've got the ghostwriter he's obviously there to write a narrative about the fall or Marky Smith or something like that or looks like that and then you've got Marky Smith that's just done his own mission with this isn't it and another thing and World War 2 and it's just like and there's a bloke in the pub and it, it comes it comes across to me very much like a bloke in the pub kind of conversation because it's there's a lot of pub philosophy in there isn't there but the, the main thing that kept making me laugh is they would state a point about something and then go man you know I've said that I'm going to completely contradict myself with something which I think very fitting but I, I couldn't so. shake off that whole Alan Partridge thing you know where he says 27 times needless to say I had the last laugh there's, there's quite a bit of that going on the, the definitely and um, there was an interview at some point where he's talking about not wanting to do a linear and how a linear autobiography would be awful and be the worst <laughs> so he clearly has made his point here it's this is only linear in the loosest of senses that like there's decades that don't get mentioned it's like um I remember reading Miles Davis' autobiography once, and uh, he had like six kids. I think they get a mention in like one sentence to say how disappointed he was in, in, in one of them. That's the only, it's like, and yeah, he's just off on one, the whole thing, which is, it's is brilliant. And and yeah, it doesn't even, unlike Stuart Lee would, like Stuart Lee would say like, and this will give the illusion of structure. There's no illusion of structure. It is just man in the pub. There's just 10 interviews, one after each other, which is like how Trump wrote his book, The Power of, bullshit whatever like well, somebody would trick him into talking to them on the phone they would be like donald there's a call for you and he's i'm busy so i wish you doctor you get on there they'd be like okay it's, it's, have to tri- <laughs> it's like kind of thing chasing him around press which trying to get him to say something yeah i mean like the, the intro to the book i, I think quite amusing I, I, it, well it's been said before you know like the man in the pub thing right i reckon it could have churned out one of these every year uh just you know the, the, the philosophies of mark smith you know what, what 
that I've been thinking this week. Um, and then, you know, that would have been quite amusing. But I, I think it's like the first chapter of Desert Storm's great sort of description of why being in a band is absolute total shite. Uh, it's like all the boredom and the travelling and the frustrations build up and you find something annoying about somebody and then the next day it's ten times more annoying and it magnifies. So you get all that kind of like um, those tensions kind of going on. Um, I mean, I, like Joy Division with the boredom side of things, they were well known for sort of like pranking other bands like egging them and like chucking maggots on them when they were on stage and that kind of thing, um, which I don't really think the fall got into, but Mark Smith had it in his own way where he'd wind up band members uh, in their own particular way. Like, um, yeah, but it's, it's it's very entertaining, and we, we you know made me think though that with the Joy Division doing all the pranking and stuff like that, you know, if only Ian Curtis had, uh, had lived, he, he could have presented you've been framed, couldn't he? Harry Hill, exactly. It, with Ian Curtis, it'd been even better. The, the, I was I was just going to point out that it was written mainly through him being interviewed in pubs. That that is how this was written, and that is exactly how it comes across. He he didn't write it in a, in quote marks in a traditional kind of sitting down and writing or collaborating way. And and you get the impression he wasn't really interested in writing his autobiography at all. Um, he, he he perhaps if he'd left him to his own device, he would have done his book of lists, which he refers to somewhere else, all his favourite hotels, and just kind of undermining the concept of a biography. But you've written, you've you've signed a contract with the publisher; they're not going to let you get away with that, you know. And he had to do the treadmill of interviews afterwards, in which he completely undermined his uh, the the ghost uh, Austin yeah. ghostwriter and said, "I don't remember saying that," and that's him and all the all the <laughs> chapter titles are down to the the ghostwriter all of it was it was uh, when this came out this a lot of people loved it they thought it was really funny i think anybody expecting any insights into working process or anything like that was it was you weren't ever going to get that so it's very light very light yeah very similar uh in the way it was just like a bunch of interviews uh and smith's actually going on in that about oh yeah i don't want the book to be like this and i don't want it to be like this because that's like really fucking shit um so yeah it, it is it is just like a bit of an update from the the, the middles one so he does but he does if we move into that first chapter power of my child the days referencing the worst song on on the worst album they ever did um we get a little bit of an insight. Again, nothing you won't have read before if you've read any kind of interviews with Smith, right? It's no revelations here, but, um, you know, he's, he's Ted the teddy boy next door is sending messages to his girlfriend via carrier pigeon, um, sending out 10 of them because most of them get shot down. And, um, yeah, he, he talks about we've got a lot to learn from the war generation, that stoic approach that's been lost as the hippies found a way to make money out of bad moods. And how he had no friends in primary school because he was a City fan. But his long jump records still exist. It's a lot of Walter Mitty style uh, interpretations of the past going on there, um, I think. The story that jumped out to me the most was this idea of the Japanese prison camp. And I don't know whether or not you can use this as a reflection of perhaps how he used authority later in life uh, in his role as band leader. Um, but that was terrifying. It, it reminded me of other stories I've heard of from people of this generation. Uh, I know there was a story in my family of a family member who had to babysit his younger sister. And what he would do is ask her to put her fingers through the side of the door. And then he'd put an egg in her fingers and say, now don't drop the egg because mom will be really upset. And then he'd go off, play with his friends and then run back in time, grab the egg, let his sister off and like, don't tell mom that you almost dropped the egg. And that kind of like torment mimicking uh, 
the story of this kind of Japanese prison camp that he would lead when he was in charge of looking after younger kids just made me wonder if that was like some foreshadowing of his uh, leadership mentality uh, for the band later on. Love his justification as well. What can you do? It's hard bringing up kids. They were safe. <laughs> you can't have them roaming the streets. And then, of course, he goes on for like 20 minutes to talk about how they should be roaming the streets because now they've lost everything. But, you know, that's life, isn't it? Yeah, the, the the Japanese prison I, prison camp gate uh, game is one of those. I, it's one of the nice little things. He does talk about family and his his childhood a little bit in a way he hadn't anywhere else. And I, those are the bits I kind of like and I'm drawn to. A bit like the interview with his mum in the Mick Middles book. I, I love things like that. It's great. And Stan the Pigeon Man and all of that. I mean, how much of that is true? And, and you never don't know, do you? But it, it kind of rings true for the areas living in. Um, so yeah, I, I love all that. And and he he mentions Zulu in here and the supposed connection to one of the soldiers um, uh, at, at, at Rourke's Drift, which is something I've been researching for a few years now. But there's too many Smiths in the story to track it easily. Um, yeah. He claimed that was true, but who knows at the moment? There's a lovely bit towards the end where he's talking about how um, maybe lovely is not the right word, but there's a bit where he references about how falling out your parents and your family is very much a middle class pastime, and that working class people do tend to get on with the parents. Because you, you, you know, you kind of need that support, don't you? If you've got as big as social network around you so but he is very warm regards his family yeah, i know and his sisters yeah. in particular right you know and, yeah, and he's yeah. in, involved um suzanne i think it is right who drew who drew covers periodically all the way through all, right up to remit um yeah he seems to genuinely you know be very affectionate definitely towards his mom and his sisters and then he has he points out his respect for his dad we talked about having a glass of water and running around the garden to calm down your urges uh, in, a, I think, last week. Um, said he went blind at six. Everything looked like it was in Hebrew and the teacher said he was skiving and uh, authority doesn't know anything. Eventually, the old ma- matron gave him an eye patch and it was all okay. You find out who your friends are in those circumstances. Everyone except the Irish let you down. Basically, is the message on the way through. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, there's nothing else really jumped out for me from that opening chapter, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I think Rob hit the nail on the head, really, in terms of the foreshadowing that comes later on around. I, I got the impression that Japanese prison camp was put in the in the place it was by the ghostwriter and not by Smith. I don't think he'd have that front and centre. Or uh, I, I do think it echoes things later on. Yeah, but he does give us a little bit of insight. He talks about the gang, the Psycho Mafia and the Rari Boys, which, again, I think he's talked in other places maybe and how he was the vice president and set up a camp in the park selling Kit Kats and Playboy to all the suckers um, he just likes that kind of a, the, this. he's not he's not painting himself some kind of kingpin he's some kind of secondary kind of a, um mad person living in the you know kind of taking advantage of all the uh, people around but uh, still very much part of the the gang and he feels sorry for kids these days who don't get to hang around on the streets <laughs> the government's tricked them all inside with computers basically. and as someone who's still piecing together a sense of who marky e. smith was this as you guys touched on like revealed where those working class values came from the idea that although his dad didn't get what he was doing you know 
know, he kind of like think managed to like kind of cross into both worlds a bit. I remember there was some line about that, like if you got a fiver in your pocket on Friday night, you've you've got it made type of a thing. That although he didn't, um, although his dad didn't understand what he was doing, it was like Mark seemed to understand what his dad was doing and had that kind of like appreciation for a, a bygone era and the wartime values and all these sorts of things. That it was like, oh, this this for me presents a very interesting idea of like conservatives not the right word, but someone who values some of the tradition, but like emerging into the music scene at the time of like counterculture and rebellion and push back against tradition. It's like, oh, this is an interesting tension to be like, oh, he thinks all these other punks are like, you know, they've lost the trail type of a thing. And yet here's this guy who's, you know, standing for what it seems like others are rebelling. I realize that's coming in the future chapters, but it was like kind of painted the picture of, oh, this isn't just someone who hated everything that was around him growing up and saw no use for anybody with the uh, ideas from a previous era. I, th I think that's right. It, he... He, he he never moved far I mean, periods in Edinburgh and elsewhere living elsewhere but he never moved far from his mum and his family and, and things like that and um, and that that does seem unusual in rock music doesn't it I mean, you, you read about other people like Jarvis Cocker and so forth who really struggled with their background and did rebel against it in a, in a way and need and wanted to escape from it and I Mark Smith clearly never really did want to escape from it yeah and um, you know it reminds me he does come into that later and I Alan Moore with his Northampton is is definitely a touchstone that does a similar thing where you dig into your past when he talks about you know the macabre and the and the the mysterious is on your doorstep it's in the East End pubs and it's impressed which it's not in Egypt um, yeah so you know he skims through the first eighteen years of his life in this chapter basically not interested in music it's it's effeminate until he hears some Black Sabbath and then maybe he thinks it's it's, it's not too bad and a bit of uh, the move and the kinks he's got a bit of time for, but mostly he's off doing whatever um, mischievous 16-year-olds did in Presswich in 1969 or 73 or whenever we're talking about. Um, yeah, so then, you know, we start to get into the era where um, he's starting to leave school and, and go get a job. And um, he does mention that um takes a bit of a detour here to talk about some films he likes. He doesn't like carry on films or Blur Witch. He loves his Hammer Horror and he liked Dead Man's Shoes, which was a great, a great, fairly recent film. And says how he's always really wanted to write a good British film like uh, Dead of the Night, which... I hadn't seen for years, so I went back and watched it, and it's it's a really good kind of uh, set of um, West in the Tale, ghostly kind of stories. Yeah, he, he did talk about Dead Men's Shoes elsewhere, and um, so I think it was a genuine. I mean, I, I think it's a fantastic um, film. Um, I mean, it, it's not so new now, of course, but when 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 this book came out, it was only a few years old. So. Mm. The, yeah. the, few, the few other things that sort of jumped out to me as well are like it's it's very much that post-war era isn't it that's coming through in this I know we've talked about the POW again but also just that there's I think it's a bit at the end of the chapter isn't there where he's going you're in Germany that's when you're in Germany and it's like that kind of um, difficulty in understanding that the world had changed I guess but he a lot of that is that that hangover is still in a lot of his lyrics isn't it so I think yeah. that comes he talks about his granddad going and uh, just going outside strange ways and recruiting people coming out of prison to work in uh, whatever it was, his, his uh, engineering 
place i'll take anyone off the street it doesn't matter where you come from so i mean obviously that's a that's a plant to to say that you know i'm just like them mark's just like like them like that lot this is the first glimpse into writing process perhaps in any way because yeah he's talking about his appreciation for his grandfather at some point he said something about like the fall is all about hard work and i had to question like is that true like i don't i don't i don't (laughs) doubt it well okay so Danny's backing me up on this thought because I'm like, I, I I would just want to pause the book there and be like, Mark, can you define hard work for me? You know, my sense looking at most of the years of the band, it's like there's 20 to 40 shows going on a year. You know, I understand there's at times long processes for writing albums, but he's like really drilling down on this idea of like people just don't work and don't put in the time and the fall is all about hard work. And at least for me, from what I've seen, that doesn't seem to be the case. Danny, can you... Well, well, just before not. you get there, Rob, I remember you trying to work out how you made a living. You were trying to work it yes. out. Like, have you got this much from a gig and maybe some advance and he's paying the gig? You're like, how is he living? But he talks about that bit in the book, doesn't he? What's your thoughts on that, Danny? Well, I mean, it's a bit unfair to say no, because clearly he ran that group for 40 years and that's no small thing. Most people don't manage to run a group for a couple of years. So, you know, it's it. you, you, you can underestimate, I suppose, the determination that does take. But... Um, <laughs> I, it, 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 I think he straddles a line somewhere between seeing the fall as his job and seeing the fall as an alternative to a job. Uh, you know, he he managed to earn a living somehow from this, and and some, you know, I guess they were doing a record every year, every other year towards the end. So that he would have had an advance, you know, from a lot of those deals that would have kept him going, plus uh, royalties and so forth. So. Uh, and then the live stuff, and uh, that went up and down over the years. There were a few years they didn't do so many, and others they did quite a lot. So you you have to keep producing, don't you, to be able to to work to to keep going like that. So um, so yeah, I mean it's not hard work, as in you know he, he probably didn't have to get up before midday most a lot of days and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's there's a, a thing, but um, we we, sh- we should credit where credit's due for keeping the thing going and and managing to do it. But I th- yeah, I I see it. It was an alternative to him doing a proper full day's work rather than a full day's work on his own but then you know i'm no expert in what the music industry is actually like so he there's talks... a lot of pressing the flesh and talking to people isn't there so yeah he talks later about how the men in the pub resented him for for having uh freedom over his own time so he's he's got definitely like you're suggesting rob a very specific interpretation of what hard work they're basically whatever he thinks it is, I would guess, is what it is. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, like in the, the previous chapter, um, it was going on about like the older generation and how tough it used to be. I think that's just like a, it's a backhanded compliment, not compliment, it's just like a backhanded reference there to sort of like, basically to, to the band members, don't be so soft, look at all this stuff we used to put up with, you, you know, you've got luxury there, mate, you got a tour bus and everything, but now we're all out, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I think one of the main, the bits I find the funniest in uh, the uh, power of childhood days bit is the bit where he's going on about um, hanging around with Irish families who'd be uh, listening to tunes on the radio and they'd be getting the lyrics wrong, which is something I do. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the quote he comes up with is, uh, I'm going to Woolworths and I'm going to shag a cow to death, which I thought was brilliant. Um, but uh, yeah, the, factually the, accurate. Well, I, I don't remember the aisle where they had the cows at Woolworths, but maybe I just didn't look hard enough. <laughs> on the way. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, 
that describes that as proper lyrics, which is like, yeah. Um, I, he I, does. I, he does give a bit of a hint to where he is. That you know, um, stop wasting time and go and do something. You know, the forming a group wasn't about trying to get your pictures in the magazines. It was about wanting to make something. Combining primitive music with intelligent lyrics. I mean, that's as clear as I've heard him beyond what he was trying to do. I mean, he's, he talks about Iggy Pop and Link Ray and Johnny Cash later as being the three people he, he looked up to. But um, I... So then he goes from soundtrack get mentioned in there, which is a, a damn good soundtrack. If, uh, What's if that one? Started, which easy one? ride to take back. All right, no, it's Ooh. good. It's good. It's good. It's good. In, in in this chapter, he also talks about his love for the soap operas Dallas and Dynasty and Neighbours, and of course, yeah. um, there was an episode of Neighbours or a sequence of episodes of Neighbours that found its way into Susan versus Youth Club's uh, yeah, lyrics. Yeah. So, That's brilliant. Um, and, and you wonder yeah. if we went through and watched all the old episodes of Dallas and Dynasty, which <laughs> even I don't intend to do anytime soon, and um, we'd probably find other bits and pieces that he's picked out of, yeah. of those kinds of programs too and he mentions this specifically in uh, billy's dead as well doesn't he getting up off couch after watching dynasty um so then he goes to work at a meat factory and, and which is run by the future chairman of man united i think come on mark could, <laughs> someone check that fact um, I think that's true. Yeah, it, it probably is. It would be a bold claim to make if it, if it wasn't in your autobiography. So um, he gets then he gets fired and uh, goes uh, working at the docks, blames the EU for all the bad stuff that's going on down there, uh, but talks about the urge to write coming. He said, I need to read a certain number of words every day or I get annoyed. And he's suggesting that he's got this kind of the, the urge to write and be creative is, a, is an impulse. Um, yeah, I was thinking earlier today actually about the title for the book, and if if I was titling this book, I think I would have gone for something slightly different. Maybe um, what's the uh, what's the song where he uh, quotes Blake at the start? Is it? Um, oh, I'll have to remind myself. Huh? I mean, he, qu- he quotes Blake liberally all the way through at a certain period, doesn't he? But there is one where the first before the moon falls. falls. Before the moon falls. That's the one that I was thinking of. Oh, you must I- uh, create a new regime or live by another man is that, is that yeah. yeah so i i just thought that would have been a, a more poetic title for the book whereas renegade is perhaps the meat and potatoes title that the actual prose deserves well it, the, the, i think the title comes from the song twister doesn't it where he refers to the um there's a line is as i dictated my autobiography to my <laughs> biographer which of course is what he literally does here um when i heard this che- my title was renegade genius so he's adopted part of that for this very book. good so i okay. think that's where it comes from that's good you should have gone with the other half as well i mean you know sell yourself mark <laughs> um <laughs> well um the other bit i i noticed when he's talking about working on the ducks uh, on the on the ducks on the docks he was he was quite touchy about his experience there i he he got into it a few times and he used to you know talk about manual labor on the docks well of course he was in admin really as yeah. a it was a mm, that's true. um but if anyone ever said that to him he would react you know quite heavily back to them and um, force them to back down on that and so he, he was obviously quite sensitive i, I guess he would have um, turned his hand to other stuff as well and he obviously traveled around other docks elsewhere as well on his bike um but there was a, a thing i noticed because i could triangulate it with some info that came out recently where he talks about getting fired because he was a bit late um, and there was a letter from his then employer sacking him that turned up on the omega auctions last year wow. uh, which which um backs all of that up and and, yeah. and it's really interesting it gives us more of an idea of how long he actually worked for the uh, uh on the docks for which was a uh, two three years i think if i remember 
remember okay. rightly. So, so he, he um, and he seems like there were several occasions with being late before they finally sacked him. Um, and a couple of the dates in there seemed to be around gigs they were doing early on. So uh, obviously started to impact on his ability to get up early. Yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. And uh, that, you know, when we hear the early days of the fall, which is not a lot of details that I, I know about that era, but yeah, I guess he was working through a lot of that, that time. Yeah, the, the, the first few months of the, the group, he was he was there. So it gives us a bit of a time. It's quite interesting to me. Yeah, as a glimpse in terms of like where his life could have gone, it's interesting because you could see that this might have just been another guy on the docks who had a band on the side and that's as far as that goes. But with that firing, he talks about how being on the dole, that gave him the time to create what would become the first LP. So it's like, had he not had that job, had he not been fired and not had that time, how how different might Renegade have turned out? Yeah, and uh, you hear that a lot. I mean, um, what was it, the Enterprise Allowance Scheme? The, the Tories ran in the early 80s, was a bit later than this, but uh, where you could basically set yourself up as a, as a any kind of small business and get a, a, um, a little bit of money. Um, as much as Thatcher's Britain was a horrific place by uh, most of the accounts of the time, the that is one little loophole and that's what again a lot of the alternative comedians and punks will talk about how they that and just being on the dole and being able to survive on the dole in the late 70s early 80s allowed for that kind of creativity if you look back uh, you know eras where that's happened during the the depression in the states where a lot of artists so there's abstract expressionist artists that were being funded by the cia uh, and um funded by the government to um, there was a lot of creativity in those in those times, which I guess you can get romantic about. And so it's one of those tropes. I can see you grinning there, Phil. What do you uh, what do you make of the of the government's covert investment in the arts? So somebody just lent me a book actually, uh, called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, which is all about how the sixties was a psyop that was funded by the CIA. Um, oh yeah, so <laughs> my ears pricked up, but I was I was uh, smirking in my usual way as you were talking. Yeah, Jim, um, obviously that started the Vietnam War. <laughs> yeah, well, his dad was an admiral, wasn't he? So, and it's like, it's weird, isn't it? <clears throat> I will tie this back forward. It's weird because the main suspects around that kind of 60s music scene are all very middle class, middle to upper class kind of kids. And they, it's it's the polar opposite of what Murphy Smith, I know you were just having a little dig at him saying he was admin rather than working on the docks, but he needed that job really for his identity, didn't he? It was it's the kind of thing that he would kind of harp on about as he was as he was talking. And I think Al was right before where it's it's a game. It's a manipulative game that he plays, isn't it, in certain circumstances where he can kind of he, he wants his cake and eat it all the way through this book, I thought. It's it's like he'll position himself as a as a certain sort of class identity. And then he'll pull the rug from underneath you sort of a few sentences later where he'll take the opposite position on something, which is kind of his MO in all interviews, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, he's, playing a, he's playing a fun game. So we get on to the chapter four, The Phantom Nazis, where he moves in with Una Baines and there's a commune-style thing going on with Brammers there. Um, uh, then the, the uh, free trade hall gig kind of happens and, you know, talks about listening to the Ramones and Nuggets and Patti Smith and getting into um, Krautrock and, and stuff. 
Um, and writing was just something I did for amusement while the others were all into weather report. And Fusion does like to, to point out how only he has good taste in, in, in that era. <laughs> but from what I hear, they were, they were, him and Kay also had the, uh, that kind of hippie-ish side. Um, and that's maybe how they got involved with Grant Showbiz at that point, who I think he describes it a bit later as living in a van with no clothes on. Um, well, uh, Grant, of course, was associated with Here and Now, who the tour did a few shows with. And I think that's how they met. And and Kay, of course, um, was a bit older um, and a single mom and all that. And um, so it's quite interesting, all of that. Th- this bit, this chapter um, is interesting because he does a bit of score settling in this as well. Um, I, I forget who it was, but somebody had said, "Oh, he was one of those who used to wear Nazi armbands." Uh, which, of course, if you were doing that round Prestwich, which is one of the places in Britain with the highest concentration Jew- uh, Jewish people, that that's quite a particularly hostile act. Yeah. If that's what, um, but we know that some of the punks did do that uh, to get a reaction more than anything. It doesn't mean there were Nazis, but but he reacts against that and accuses the rest of the group of doing that instead. So so who knows? But he makes a particular point of making that point. Um, and and it's interesting that he refers to Una um, quite coolly in this. He, he says he, he wasn't in love with her. He's very clear, <laughs> keen to make that point as well, which which is interesting. I think, generally speaking, he talks about his partners and girlfriends and wives relatively respectfully in this book, I think. Um, and I, in some ways, he's a bit of a traditionalist in terms of values rather than a progressive on on gender relations. But that means he has a, a kind of respectful attitude rather than a disrespectful one, generally. But I thought that was a bit underhand just to make say, well, I wasn't in love with her, obviously, just moved in, you know. Um, I was interested in his comments about Stevie Wonder's superstition. Um, And that's a song I think is absolutely amazing. One of the, as far as I can say, pretty much perfect a song. But he he talks about it, he talks about it as a record that's aware of its own strengths and and the poetry of the lyrics. And I I think all of that kind of stuff, I I think that really comes across as something that um, is sincere and he means that. I think Um, so. I mean, he likes... And you don't get it from a lot of his interviews. Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly loves pop music and um, has got a good record range of stuff that, that he'll listen to um the yeah he he talks yeah he does a dig at Brammer and Baines for the swastika armbands and then he says how his sister Barbara who was a hell's angel at the time called Brammer and Baines the plastics people who get on buzzes wearing leather jackets that worst of fashion crimes um and the punk safety net was that we did well I guess this is the punk safety net is a refuge uh from 70s Britain but it was a a simple problem to the very complex mess of state he doesn't know it'd be punk rock didn't solve Thatcher's <laughs> Britain unfortunately is where I guess he was going with that <clears throat> could well have been yeah uh, but there's uh plenty to talk about Nazis in this we've got to know about the bikers uh not being Nazis uh which is probably linking to uh his sister being a hell's angel uh but you know some of them must be just just <laughs> just statistically speaking <laughs> are you right <laughs> <laughs> you can't that one eh? you have um, a percentage you have a percentage that bad egg over there, Colin. <laughs> <Just> observe, <laughs> um, yeah, he was going to debate. like cars. Yeah, Jesus Webb starts the buggers now. Like you know, you're planning about it. What 2008? <laughs> um, plenty to compl- complain about with Paul Morley, that, and that's that's all fair enough. He's just sort of so full of shit. It's unbelievable. Uh, just awfully romanticising, and yeah, no, not going to time for him. Um, but yeah, the, the, the bit he was mentioning about the relationships and uh, kind of how he was all like very respectful in, in 
in that respect of it by its partners. Kind of like ties in a little bit to something he says later on it with the, uh, you know, head through the keyhole and, you know, like people who just sort of parade their, uh, their lives about. Um, so, the, you know, there is a, a fair bit of like myth making and just keeping the actual, his actual life private, I think here. You know, he'll talk about, how he, how, you know, what he thinks about what he likes, but he won't really sort of like delve into his, his personal life, which is fair play and he's done it fairly well in the book. I, I think one of the other things in the chapter when he starts to um, criticise how Presswich Hospital would, would uh, treat the patients by making them do yoga and listen to Pink Floyd, when basically right. all they needed to do was go to the pub with Mark for like a, a couple of hours and that would have sorted them out um, rather than um, making them eat uh, healthy food and listen to Tangerine Dream. Yeah, well, uh, sorry, you noticed as well, like they mentioned to the uh, well, mentions of Buzzcocks and describes them as girly pop. And to me, Buzzcocks, bubblegum pop, not girly pop. They were damn good bubblegum pop band. Important distinction. And of course, the Buzzcocks and um, were, were the the main reason that the fall got off the ground in, in terms of releases in that first that first. Uh, the the Bingo Masters, bands. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was like part of the, the Manchester Music Collective kind of thing that was going on at the time, but uh, Buzzcocks were. Um, they really helped some people. There was one paragraph in this chapter that actually was the most interesting paragraph for me in the entire book. And it's the one where he talks about how he never aligned himself with the punk thing and that he saw punk as a quick statement. And that, uh, what was it that he said? Something about the, the clash and the sex pistols. It's hard to keep that shit fresh. They're just barking generalizations. Um, and he says, uh, you know, my songs are more like stories. Unlike every other fucker uh, who just wanted to bark out wild generalization. Simple fact, we weren't a punk band. That wasn't my intention. Uh, most of the original players couldn't handle the fallout. And where is the one line? There's some of it where he talks about, for me, I was in it for longevity. And that was really interesting to me, thinking about, oh yeah, you are, you know, one of the key players in this, you know, emerging music trend. And, you know, I I could make a vague personal connection where it's like, oh, I was in a new metal band in high high school in the late 90s there's no way that band would have carried on yeah i believe it's no way no way that with a j because you spelled the things that way at the time that was give us some of your lyrics rob (laughs) and trying to think like oh yeah we would have never have had the idea that this is something that we should try to carry on for 35 years and to me this like kind of gave away you know, what is the biggest piece of, you know, it's the Marky Smith and the grandma and the bongos line of like, he says of the original lineup, they didn't even want to be in the fall. The whole concept of the fall back then was mine. And that became this interesting thing of like, oh yeah, you emerged during this scene, but you were not necessarily of that scene. Even while in it, you were something else, at least in retrospect from his perspective. 35 years later. Yes. I was always in it for the long call. Yeah. Well, I, I was just thinking about that. About, he does spend quite a bit of time analysing punk, wasn't he? And about how they're, how they're not punk. And I think even the Buzzcocks themselves pretty quickly turned the back on the punk word, didn't they? So there was probably quite a bit of that around in the scene at the time with those types of bands. Um, and I was also reflecting on what uh, Danny said before as well about the sexual politics and what that jumped out at me as well, the, the fact that he's actually quite respectful. Um, and his, his attitude towards women seems to be not wanting to mess them around and, uh, you know, wanting 
since I've ever been straightforward. So it surprised me. Um, I thought he would be just as callous about the women in his life as he is about everybody else, um, to be honest with you. But the, the, the thing about Punk that really jumped out to me was where he, where he said the best thing about it was that you didn't rely on perfection. You didn't have to be a well-skilled musician to be a punk. And that was that was that's that whole primitive music thing, isn't it? But I I gotta defend the hard work thing up there as well. Because I, I think he does. I think when you compare the other bands that were around at the time and how vapid some of the lyrics are and stuff and how much effort he was putting into the actual literacy of the of the the songs that they were putting out. I'll give him the benefit of doubt. I think he worked harder than the other bands at the time. Maybe not the bus parks, but absolutely everybody else. I think he talks um I think it was an old brother and Hanley was talking about the just the pace at that time. It's maybe a little bit later than this, but you know, where they would be just writing songs all the time and you learn them and three months later set list has completely changed and it was the record companies that wanted them to slow down right they want to put out an album a year and even as he got later in the career it's like one every two three years and so they were always fighting against that he wanted to write the next album put that out tour and he does cite he does say it's like a 60s model almost like a single every three months and an album every eight months or 12 months and uh that just wasn't the way that the record companies wanted it in the basically any time after the the mid to late 70s when albums became a big deal there's a really shit thing called voices one and i read somebody writing about how this was like authentic and this really sounded like mark and i was like mark and i was like that doesn't sound like smith at all that sounds like a shitty journalist yeah (laughs) I, the, the voices sections, I think, because I, I did, I can't remember now. Um, it's a long time ago, but I remember looking at those in quite a bit of detail at the time, as you can imagine. And some of it was taken off the full forum and stuff like that. These, okay. some of these are contributors to the things. So, that, um, there's, there's other bits I think are him that go, I think, just after some of the photographs. There's a little bit of writing, which might yeah. be him, but the voices sections are, are not, I don't think. Oh. I just wanted to note a couple of things as well. Um, one of which is when he talks about the, what he says, we got this drummer in from Stockport this little bald man Dave who died actually which is true he did but of course that was Steve Ormrod not Dave but mm-hmm. he was called Dave for many 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 years till Dave Simpson um, dis- uh, dug out the actual name so it's a real shame that this guy had the wrong name for decades even Ma- uh, Martin Brammer called him uh, Dave for years it's a shame um, the, the other thing of course is that in claiming to to be the kind of um, the setter of the ethic of the fall, if you like, and determining the way it went forward. He's also um, setting out his territory from from Martin Brahma, who claimed to be the originator of the sound of the fall. So uh, I, we don't need to take a position on all of that because the group was different within a couple of years anyway, and Mark was in complete control. But the sense you get from those early years is that it was more of a group effort. Yeah. And, and the other thing is that in in kind of criticising some of those sloganeering um, lyrics, some of those are great sloganeering lyrics, of course but um yeah he he moved away from that pretty quickly but he was doing that to start with some of those early songs race hatred for example they they are sloganeering but literally just maybe for the first year or so he yeah all the hey fascist really stuff it was very it was very yeah, on the nose yeah. but we've we've come across you know a good chunk of those at this point and most of them have gone out for reasons like that just like i yeah. i I haven't got a lot of time for, I mean, Flash, a couple of good singles, but nothing else. Sex Pistols, same, you know, I'm Gibby Pill. That's what you said earlier, but Phil, about them changing and evolving, like Lydon going from Sex Pistols to Pill in the, in the course of basically a year. 
Um, let's take a little bit of a breathe. I'm going to put together a little bit of a playlist of some um, things referenced on uh, on this uh, in the first few chapters. And I'll, uh, let's have a, a few minutes just listening. First up, Black Sabbath, NIB. <laughs> Played um, Black Sabbath, Nib, uh, The King's Plastic Man. I always wondered how they wrote that one. And um, <laughs> Night of Fear by The Move, of course, they covered um, both the idol race and, and The Move along the way. Uh, I, I wasn't, I'm not smart enough to choose songs that actually influenced the final directly, but all of these were mentioned in some way in in uh, passing. Um, so, yeah, that, the, was that where he kind of like referenced the kinks and uh, he was saying that, oh, bands like that wouldn't get signed nowadays because, you know, like the teeth are a bit wonky and the guitar slightly out of tune. I think a lot of that started with MTV and it was, it's not what it sounds like anymore, it's what it looks like uh, and it becomes like more of a, a product. Um, and, uh, the results of that is, uh, yeah, everything becomes overly polished and you know just just too 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 clean and too clean. nice and too clean and nice. Not like uh, the sixties with Engelbert Humperdinck and Carl. No, I mean take a look at Engelbert from the sixties. He, he was a uh, was horrific, you know. Horrific. <laughs> Chapter five, the group and their useless lives. Um, the faller about the present and that's it. He says a little bit about about Carl, nice things, um, until he lost his mojo or whatever. And then he goes on for ages about how great they put the TLC band are. <laughs> but um, 
Uh, and then he, get, I guess, he gets dragged back into talking about the early days a bit, and talks about Christian um, Staff Nine, the Christian hand that the Hamleys and uh, Scanlon were involved in. Um, and um, he said his job is to keep the band fresh. And as he said in other places, the only mistake he's ever made was sacking Craig Scanlon. Um, and uh, yeah, to bring back the theme of grandfathers in this episode, where we started in the early chapters around this time in the book, it's started to feel like, oh, this kind of seems like how if the narrative was controlled by my grandfather, he'd talk about like his, his former like employees or like friends where it's sort of like, yeah, they were all kind of sort of knobs in their own way or not necessarily the greatest of people. And like, you know, we've touched on a few times in this already, but just that idea of like the kind of like, yeah, uh, cake and eat it too. A bit of the sense of like, ah, I was right. Ah, oh, they're, you know, they were good guys. Not quite as good as me. Couldn't quite run with me. That kind of like narrative of like it. This was the first part when reading this book, where I'm like, oh, I wonder if this is that um, self justification piece sneaking in, and like a little bit of the detachment from reality, and the like creating narratives about other people piece, and you know, the, <laughs> the group and their useless lives. It's a bit of a strong title when talking about you know people you used to spend a lot of time with, and you know all these underhanded judgments beginning to sneak in that just continue on through. Future Future chapters as well. And to get the, the suggestion that he's not the most reasonable of men. Yes. <laughs> the, In this, summary, yes. The, the line that, I, that always stuck out to me is that the ex, the four members are just anybody in the street, which is not how most bands and band members think about, you know, we've been in bands, me and Phil have been in bands in the past, you know, we, we have this strong relationship because of that. He's like, none of that matches. I didn't give a shit. Carl Burns, the dude who joined us for one gig, they're all just people. Do you want to talk to people you worked with 30 years ago? That line, it's like, okay, that's a really different mindset from most people in bands. Yeah, that line really jumped out at me, actually, when you said that. Because I found myself going, oh, yeah, no, I don't talk to anybody that I worked with like ages ago. So if you do view it as a job, then I can kind of understand that mentality. But it really is like more, more like being in a street gang, isn't it? Where it becomes like a bit of a family and that. Um, there was a there was a couple of lines that accused me, and I wasn't quite sure he was saying that. I was very surprised at the last bit about Steve Hadley, where he says, I think the quiet ones are usually the worst. Which is not incredibly harsh comment about me Sunday who if anybody can claim to be a contributing factor to the success of the fall I think Steve Hanley has got a good a good shout there really um but yeah I I, <laughs> I just thought a lot of it was very funny I must admit by this point in my reading I was I just thought I'm not taking any of this seriously he's got his tongue firmly in his cheek when he's talking about it, people I don't think Marky Smith is taking this project that seriously <laughs> in terms it being a true reflection of what of events but it, that did make me think more about it's this is more this is closer to um his his like magical realist interpretation all isn't it that's what he's trying and it does i think he makes reference later on doesn't he you don't have to be somewhere else you can make wherever you are special that's what he's doing he's making does, does he believe any of it though i mean i've talked in the past with most of you about the persona the mess persona but does he believe 
on any level any of this stuff? I think he thinks it's malleable and you never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And if you are constantly shifting your perspective, like in what I've just seen all I know, but he's like, if I like drank and did everything that they said, you know, I'd be dead by now. And then later on, he's kind of bragging about how much he can drink and the fact that he's, he's up there with the best of them. He's just very mercurial, isn't he? He's not giving you anything. He's not giving you an angle that you can. In fact, isn't it in this bit where the the off the uh, the well, the journalist is trying to say, "I'm trying to understand you, Mark. I'm trying to get to the centre of you and work out what this." Well, this like you know the the, the central kind of core of Marky Smith is, and it's just refusing to give that to anybody, which I think is cool. It is cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it is in a way. I mean, th- this is a funny chapter um, in a funny book, it, and I mean funny kind of in both sense, well, all senses of the word. He spends a lot of time saying he doesn't, he doesn't, he finds it hard to talk about ex-members of the band. He talks about um, uh, wondering what the point of all of that is and all of that, and then he spends quite large chunks of the book talking about. Ex-members of the group. So, um, and a lot of this is self-justification. But I, as I think he says, either in this chapter or somewhere else, um, what, what are you going to spend all your time apologising for stuff you've done? You, you, you know, he he would have to spend quite a lot of time apologising. I think. Uh, I think um, what struck me about him talking about Burns and Hanley and Scanlon in particular here is those three were as crucial as anybody, and and, and certainly Brahma, um, um, Han- um, Hanley and Scanlon were absolutely crucial to a significant chunk of the fall's history. And he dismisses them in relatively few paragraphs. On the other hand, he's not overly rude to them, I wouldn't have said. I, I think here, the quiet ones are the worst is the harshest comment he has to say about Hanley, and that's not that bad. He does say he, he always gave a good performance and, and was very loyal, which is obviously true. I, I suppose his perception is is affected by the fact, uh, the way in which the group fell apart in, in America. Um, so, it, you know, he clearly will see it through that lens. And, and about Craig Scanlon, he's actually very positive and says that he was always very good to be honest he clearly has still had a lot of regret about sacking him he was one of well actually if you add it up it's statistically few people who were actively sacked um uh, so although you could argue for constructive dismissal i suppose um the torture that they were put through of course um so so he does i think there is some some reflection there on his behavior but you have to read between the lines to find it um, and i think he knows how good steve hanley was um he said that in many other places and but he, his perception will be colored by what subsequently happened and i think really if if that's the worst he's got to say about steve hanley i you know i think that's that's pretty good really yeah it- it's the tension, I think, this chapter uh, where he's talking about the constant changes, but at the same time saying he regrets sacking Scanlon. And later he says he asked um, Hanley to stay on even after the brownies thing. So he's like, I mean, that's it. It's what we're talking about here, Phil, isn't it? He's a, he's giving you both sides. And in this sense, he, he kind of believes that there's a cognitive dissonance going on, but that's what's drive, also driving him at the same time. Just to pick up as well, though, on the thing about um, having friends in the band. Well, he had wives in the band, so let's make that clear. And he did also have friends in the band. So uh, Simon Wollstonecroft was a friend of his. There were there were other people who were his friends. And that final group for the last decade or whatever however long it was, decade or so, um, they seemed to get on pretty well. But I think their relationship was very different from previous groups too. He was much an older older father figure, they've said. So 
Um, but um, so I don't think it, it stayed true that he regarded the the group as just kind of disposable in that sense. And I, I don't really think he could believe that he he would not have kept that group going for forty years without those those people. And I he knows that I think. It's bravado, absolutely. He makes that comment, doesn't he, about he always lives in the present. And I I always took that it, it, as I was as I was reading through this. It's like everything is like what's on his mind right there and then. That's what. I'm going to talk about now, and it, and you do change mind all the time, don't you? He does talk about how he's right all the time, and there's the two year gap, and so he everyone gets annoyed with him, and then two years later they come back and say you were right. <laughs> Sometimes ten years later. Uh, he would have ranted in the old days, but now he just accepts that that's how the world is. Everyone, everyone <laughs> is initially wrong, but eventually sees his way of being. You that was the part that reminded me of my grandfather. I was struggling to find the exact bit, but it was like, oh yeah, that would have been my grandfather and the book he wrote about all the people he had wronged or those who had wronged him. <laughs> so then we get to the fool. Uh, he talks about the tarot and he says, you know, he starts off with, um, starts off with talking a little bit about his process in the sense that you can't really have a Marky e. Smith school of writing school because it is instinctive. You, you can't just knock out hits. Uh, every two years he tries to write you a business contest winner, but uh, it just doesn't work. And um, he keeps them all in the carrier bag, as we know. So, you know, page you know, hundreds of pages of stuff just in his, his carrier bag. Um, and then they tell that nice story where they bag of lyrics and they were doing the Reformation and they were the truck stop and the, uh, the the wind took them all and blew them and a magical child came out of nowhere and collected them all and gave them back to him. And if they hadn't, Reformation would have been different. And oh, my goodness, who, who knows what? Well, that could have been. Um... Yeah, that, that's ended a bit like the uh, Jim Morrison thing, did it, with the uh, the, the car crash and the, the uh, Indian gentleman. Um, but yeah, it, it starts going on a bit about syndromes, doesn't it? Like uh, it goes on about the, the storm roses syndrome and the uh, this chap. So it's like takes him five years to write an LP, and like in the previous chapter, he's going on about um, was it the, the post fall syndrome therapy? Uh, oh no, that was what I came up with. <laughs> but the uh, but I think I've been too slack sometimes. Um, but yeah, um, you got uh, John Cooper Clark uh, mentioned in there. It was going about John Cooper Clark never had a job, I think, and it was like no, he apparently he used to work in Salford Uni and he knew to uh, like loans department and he knew drills and things like that. And he was terrible for getting them back. Um, but yeah, and going on a bit whinging lyricists, not asked about what some lads break up. Uh, it was like, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, that's true. Um, it's just lazy writing, isn't it? You know, uh, doing all the Dullough Tungy sort of stuff, which, uh, you know, Smith did get into a little bit when uh, check out Phil's uh, Soppy Smith list. Like, you know, it's, it's not territory he's unfamiliar with. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely get the point and agree with a lot of the points that he makes in, 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 in that chapter there. Yeah, he's, he talks about physical songwriting, which is an interesting idea that, you know, most people are not physically in, in that moment. Uh, we're not interested in your love life. I'm going to the doctor's every five minutes saying you're depressed too much time to think not like the russian lads those indie boys with their stale whininess it's it's their identity <laughs> yeah I, I i was hoping when i i remember reading this bit and referring to not having a mark smith school of writing lyrics and uh, and so on I, I guess i was wanted from this book a little bit more about what he actually did because he he didn't write the same way throughout his history but there's certain things that i think he did do in a way that few other people did um 
the way he wrote was um i'm not necessarily going to say unique but but it was it was rare and unusual and he did things that nobody else did and um he doesn't say anything about that here which is a bit of a shame i think i think he could have had interesting things to say about how he did things. of course he wasn't interested in explaining his process i get that um and i'm just interested as well though in in the balance he strikes um in his comments about um, you know not everything has to be really literary and dylan like he says 30, 30 verses of 15 syllable words that even the the band get bored of playing um i guess some of some of his early songs in particular are really really long rants <laughs> in a way uh, and some of his songs are are um stories really pared down um and i guess the later years he was moving away from coherent lyrics into vocals really so you get something different um uh, and a m- much more kind of anti-lyric approach um but but there's no there's no there's no insights in 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 the book beyond those comments really which is a bit of a shame I, of course i'm really interested in all that stuff and this book has nothing for me no no <laughs> in that respect. I, I, when you talk about the storm rosa syndrome and he goes to stooges and album in one night not enough bands work like that get in there and fucking do it that's your job and uh they said they wanted a song like uh, the velvet so he just goes and writes industrial estate and i, I do actually you know I, i've i've gleaned little bits along the way and and i have a specific writing style that that i think i don't think it's unique that you just go around and steal whatever you can from books and magazines and you keep writing them down and so when it times it comes time to write you're editing from a lot of stuff rather than trying to start with a blank page and and that's that's always been more interesting for me than um then yeah, trying to actually express myself in any way, just take a bunch of stuff other people have written that sounds interesting and throw that at people instead. And, and I think that's there's not huge numbers of people in kind of pop and rock music that really do that. They do you're kind of writing poetry or songs in a traditional sense, and uh, and and that methodology you're describing is, I think, what particularly those of us who've spent a lot of time contributing to the annotated fall, we that has revealed much more of that process in Mark Smith than anybody previously realized he did all the stuff nicked out of cartoons and um dallas and neighbors and and films way more than anyone knew was there so absolutely that kind of well i'm not um it, it's it's not quite a barosian approach is it but it's nearly that kind of putting things together from different sources and it makes a sense and that's fine that's that's all you need for a really good rock lyric yeah we talked to i mean phil did one on the tim kinsella who's in a band called john of arc and uh and um cap and jazz and he talked about you know getting the dictionary out, the magazines out and stuff and by bringing that, you're reflecting what's going on around you as well, because you you can't write without adding your own stuff to it. So I think what what Smith did, from my perspective, is he took all of these bits and then he filtered it and put little bits of himself in there. So you do get some Smith, but it's kind of filtered through uh, the media and the um, and the world. Yeah, it's uh, I, so there's a few things I was thinking about there, and one of which is what Danny's just said. But he really plays down the William Burroughs influence in this book, does but I don't believe well, he denies it, it specifically yeah uh, and I, I just don't believe even that story of the papers going out in the wind and the little boy picking what's very reminiscent to the story about naked lunch getting dropped and the chapters all getting mixed up by the secretary um, so that 
Yeah, I, I didn't buy that, but I think the that kind of magpie style of lyric writing that because I, I remember watching you when we were in a band together. I remember you always having a notebook with you, you're always sort of scribbling down in it and stuff. And it was, and I kind of I learned that habit from you and watching you sort of piece lyrics together from lots of different places. And then when I when I fronted the band for a little bit, that became very much my style of writing rather than that. See, it always comes across a bit sick form, doesn't it, when people are writing earnest poetry lyrics and it's it's a bit cringy to be fair so and it, it it doesn't marry with any of the styles of music really that uh, that we're more interested in um so i i found I, I i i did get a couple of nuggets out of what he was saying like when he's talking about industrial estate and he talks about that being her poem that he had to throw a chorus in to kind of appease the rest of band members so that it had something to kind of sing along with and stuff um but he is i i i quite like the fact that he's guarded about his method and he's precious about that. I, I take a lot of um, comfort in that because he took it seriously, didn't he? It's much like, I don't know if you've ever read any Roberto Bolano or something, he talks about literature and poetry and like how important it is. It's like, you know, this is fundamental to being human. So it is something we should be precious about and we should be sort of careful about our art and how we use words and things like that. And I've always I've always put Murky Smith in that category of somebody who just took it seriously. So again, that kind of hard work thing, I, yeah, it is subjective but I do see it's being important I think he references PKD in this chapter as well doesn't he where it's which is another kind of um, strand that crops up in a lot of his lyrics this sort of untrustworthy reality Gnostic kind of attack on things uh, or a universe that's kind of stacked up against you which is <laughs> which fits his very paranoid worldview which comes through later. Yeah um, without wanting to open up a can of worms here as well he does get into his thoughts on the occult and the vibration they leave and he did cold readings and he kind of again he plays that game where it's real I can do it I've got precog uh, but also I'm just cold reading these people and and then they come begging for me to, to give them advice all the time um, nobody loses in tarot, unlike poker, where you come out depressed like you've been watching television. Perfect segue into what I wanted to bring to this, Brennan. So you guys have said, I think, plenty here. I don't have more to contribute to the uh, the process piece, but I found it very interesting, the idea that the early days of rehearsal space were funded by, according to Mark, his pool playing and doing tarot card readings. That was an interesting idea that that was like the engine behind being able to provide the band a space uh, to be able to do what they were doing. And that idea that he'd never dream of ringing up his dad for any money or anything like that, like he had to do it himself. So yeah, you know, I'm starting to lean back a little bit. That, okay, yeah, there is this sense of responsibility and, and some hard work in here. But the line that I just absolutely love was, I've got that type of face that people want advice off of. <laughs> There's another great line later on, we talk about the pub philosopher who always came with an answer or a question. <laughs> so we finally reached the second album, Dragon. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we might run out of time here. I'm going to drop the blue book thing. Maybe come back to another time. As brilliant it is, but let's see how far we can get into um, into this in the next 45 minutes. So he talks about the horror of James and Mackin um, uh, on your doorstep. The horrors in the mundane, the backdrop for the terror. We kind of touched on a little bit, but um, Dragnet has nothing to do with the reality of the times. Um, it's about the uh, 
the occult on your doorstep. Um, and then he goes on about talking about the biggest people he's ever seen live in Rochdale. And then now when the uh, the dudes came over to Rochdale with and sat in a pub with lumpen blokes with dents in their bald skulls, <laughs> they were just too un-Rochdale for them. I think he wants to move there now. <laughs> Not being funny, have you been to Rochdale? I've been to Rochdale, yeah. It's it's from Grimm, it's worse than Wigan. <laughs> One of the things about this book that I like is is the first sentences of the chapters are, are, are usually really good. Uh, I suspect we owe this to Austin. Um, and this one just begins with, I've never really got on with record companies. It, it, and 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 then it goes into all the Mackin and um, and MR James, and which I just it just tickled me. It didn't really go anywhere with that. But um, but yeah, that line that you picked out, the, the real occult's not in Egypt, but in the pubs of the East End and the stinking boats of the Thames, and obviously is talking about uh, Mackin there. And um, and and that that I think is ref- that idea is is behind a lot of lot of the fall lyrics and a lot of what mark smith was trying to do with his words i think at certain periods anyway and and that does come across and that is that is something that's um notable about what the fall ended up doing i think uh, and that's probably a central idea i think to everything um down the years um, i was also tickled by the point he says the only thing i do find annoying with fall fans is their tendency to reminisce too much about the early days <laughs> I find it hard to look back at things like everybody else. And, th- and it's a bit like that line about the full being about the present in the previous chapter. That, again, does strike me as true. He was about, you've got to move on, leave the stuff behind. And he did act, a lot of people say that and don't do it. And he did do it. Um, and, and so, again, I, th- I feel that's sincere and, and says something about what he was trying to do. Um, and he, he talks a little bit in this chapter about Oasis as well. And it is surprising. He, he quite likes some of these people who I you wouldn't necessarily expect him to like. Um, so I don't know. But um, it's. It, I think there was stuff in here that I, I thought, again, he throws it away. It's thrown away. But he, he does hit on things here that strike me as explaining something about what he was trying to do and be. Yeah, and I think you know, written by Miles Davis, who was in that similar mindset, he changed the course of music four or five times and just didn't ever look back. He was always moving forward and and of course in a jazz world, you don't need a band. You just play with different people whoever's around, you keep moving forward and that's I mean, that's a, a close analogue to what Smith was doing but um, there did seem to be a lot more tension because he was in that kind of cycle where you're supposed to keep a band, you're supposed to stay with the same label, you're supposed to have that continuity. Um, but he didn't, and he st- he made it work. And yeah, that goes back to that idea of the work ethic and, and making sure you pay your way. And he does get that in a little bit when he gets to Edinburgh and he's feeling a little bit flush because he's on Polygram's money. Um, but then, you know, six months later or whatever, he's, he's going around his mum's house for tins of soup. Um, I like the bit where he talks about t- trying to write out of a song, putting Spectre as a director, specifically talks about putting a twist on the normal. And um, there's another insight into it writing methods he's talked about writing from other voices most people think of themselves as one person and don't know what to do with the other voices in their head i don't deliberate like most other people i know when something's done and it's time to move on unlike me we're talking <laughs> forever <laughs> yeah there's also just this interesting dissection of uh journalists in this and of course um i guess when he's like again comparing himself to the people he's slagging off he was criticizing journalists and tv writers for having a lack of quality and quantity of ideas. And then I'm I can, you know, have some sympathy here. Like I imagine when you're in a band who's trying to do interesting things, you know, your album shows up and it's not the album maybe the critics were expecting. And then the critics
critic has their job where, you know, they need to draw eyes to their articles and blah, blah, blah. They're trying to keep themselves in business. And then you as the artist is releasing music and you're kind of, again, in like in this tension with them. I imagine that is a rather frustrating place to be. And, you know, I can be a bend over backwards type of guy. Imagine if I was a bit more of a hard ass like Marky Smith. I imagine that would just be either frustrating to no end or you just completely divorce that part of your job and just ignore critics completely. Yeah, it's um, that he, he doesn't touch on it too much. But yeah, there definitely some hard times along the way because of that. But then again, would the longevity have been there if he hadn't have kept that attitude uh, even during those lean years? Well, one thing that um, I liked, which is a bit, isn't it's not necessarily related to that, is talking about when people move. Um, getting back to staying in your own place, you know, press, which is just as valid as Dante writing about his inferno. Um, and he says, people who've gone to London and after one night, their entire creative minds have been altered beyond, beyond recognition. They become rootless. The London body swap has skinned them. They've lost themselves in the process. Sounds like you, Phil. Yeah, I loved, I picked up what Rob was saying. I, I love that whole screen about journalists. I thought it was hilarious. The, the, the where he goes, uh, da, 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 da. I lost it now. How do you put it? Um, where he's journalists, he's going, Yeah, you'll never guess how my wife breastfeeds now. It's a throwaway comment. It's a journalist might say to you in conversation, and you can just imagine him like, with his head in his hands. He's thinking, what am I doing talking to these people at all? But I, the other one that jumped out to me about this, because Dragnet's our favourite album, and it was just a bit about the studio not wanting to release it, because they thought it might interfere with their opportunities to get Marillion in the future, which I thought was great. If it's going to happen to to, uh, to to anybody about any particular album, it's going to be Dragnet, isn't it? <laughs> We've been there, Phil. Like yeah, we were in a studio in Salford, and they just wouldn't let us do what we wanted to do, because they, they were afraid that when we put it out it would reflect badly on them so i can imagine like and we were not dragnet levels of lo-fi no i think just wanted to smash a few bottles yeah Yeah, i picked up on the 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 journalism stuff um quite a lot it's something that's really annoyed me over the years it's just like it just seems to be a bunch of people who are looking to make um a career for themselves on you know the in the entertainment industry or on telly just be a bit of a face, you know, like uh, talking head. Um, and a, a lot of the time, it, it, it's like they do a kind of a lot of bandwagon jumping with what's cool and what's hip at the time. So it's like success by association and, you know, it, more exposure and uh, look at me sort of uh, hanging around with these celebs. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thing where, it, like, Smith kind of, like, says to him, um, you know, they don't listen to you. Uh, they, well, they don't listen enough. Um that comes about uh, again later on, where he was, was kind of like saying that he'd been telling journalists about doing Luciani for ages, and they were just ignoring it. I think that the because they were used to sort of like a certain amount of bullshit from Smith, uh, they, they always took other things with a pinch of salt, which you know he might have cryptically explained. Um, but uh, yeah, they weren't listening. Um, and yeah, the the, the bit about avoiding vampires all my life. 
yeah, that's always good advice. Um, and the, the bit that made me laugh uh, the most in this chapter was going about Tortalis turns, reminding him of Metallic KO. That's that's bigging himself up quite a bit there. Uh, Metallic KO was just sort of like, well, it sounded like um, uh, like Iggy kind of like goading the audience into murdering him on stage. Uh, well, you, you don't quite get that, but there is a tension with the band with um, Tortalis. Absolutely. Um, he starts talking about when he gets uh, Tortalis turns that the problem started, in his words, that uh, he began to see albums as documents, these elongated kind of uh, expressions, which I guess reached their uh, zenith with the hex. and uh, But um, with Fiery Jack as a turning point, but he doesn't go too much into that. And I think, although we haven't got to the halfway point in this book, what I do notice is that the themes, shall we say, <laughs> re- reappear quite strongly from this point on. Um, more new Puritan stuff about the hipsters um, are basically uh, having more taboos than the conservatives and how the bands shit and wanted to do sixth form gang of four style politics. And it was only Smith <laughs> who was able to make sure they they actually uh, thought things through. Um, has a good go at uh, Wilson and how um, the idea of having a situationist record label that is, uh, you know, essentially cultural terrorist subverting capitalist public spaces is good in theory but different with a South Mancunian at the head and then likened him to Engels who basically was uh, oh the greatest socialist of all times but had factories full of children in the industrial revolution at Manchester uh, I just wanted to pick up on the last sentence of this chapter um, well the last couple of sentences because you, I think you mentioned this a little bit earlier um, just to link back to the discussion we had earlier about Punker's Rebellion and getting away from where you were brought up and from your family and so on uh, and, and it's echoed here. He says, it's time to eradicate the idea that by getting away, you'll find yourself or walk into a glorious new existence. People who think like that just want rid of themselves. Where you're living is in your head. And that feels like that's significant. Of course, he did escape to Edinburgh at one point. But um, but I, that feels like that does link back to what we were talking about, rebellion and getting away. And he never did in quite that way. No, I think he's uh, pretty consistent in those kind of ideas that you don't need to go anywhere else what you need is right there and yeah whether it is the occult on your doorstep or your own voices that you can express yourself in different ways there's enough richness in your day-to-day life although i do question that with the reformation album and the full songs like systematic abuse where he's talking about the vegetables he has in his cupboards but say that maybe gets a bit thin at some point but uh keep digging mark keep digging rob what do you reckon yeah not much more to add from this chapter i'm i'm ready to move on to the year of the rats when you are i yeah this is the year of the rats rob i forgot to introduce it what, what do you reckon what? about the rob, what do you reckon about the chapter eight the year of the rats <laughs> the year of the rat well one of my favorite parts was the kind of man at the pub rant he has about buildings and architecture uh again you know when we started talking about this it's sort of like there is the meandering history of the band and then he kind of takes these little detours from uh from time to time and for myself personally i I quite resonate with this as a canadian born guy who doesn't know many buildings you know that are that are older than a hundred years i loved how uh he was talking about like manchester and uh how there's those incredible old victorian buildings and i like 
liked his line. He said, you could read history off some of those buildings. They were masterpieces, beautiful combinations of science and art, not like it is now. It's just a bad Rotterdam now. And just liking this idea of like, you know, uh, again, it's that theme, if you will, of like what was beautiful and wonderful about the past that we're losing. And now it's just kind of this degraded modern kind of junky thing. And, you know, myself, it's funny. There's uh, in Belgium, there's the town of Levan La Neuve, which I lived in. And it was this idea that, oh, there's Leuven, which is this beautiful, old, well-established university town going back to the, you know, like 1400 something when the university opened. And it's like, we're going to build a new one now. And it was just done like completely in the style of late 1970s architecture. And it just looks god awful. And at the same time to Belgians, like, well, that looks so cool and neat. But to anybody who walks in, it's like, no, 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 the old one's way better. (laughs) Like, so just this idea of him having that appreciation for that, that old architecture. And then, you know, as he says, like over time, the main aim is just to push the working class out and then gentrify it and then just, you know, suck the soul out of all of these places. As a man who's never been to Manchester, this spoke to my heart. Monstrous carbuncles. Um, I I went to Rotterdam before I'd heard this and also the beautiful South Song Rotterdam, which talks about how bad Rotterdam is. And it did strike me as being like a big version of Lee, which is not good. <laughs> Super Lee. <laughs> it talks a bit about labels trying to destroy him and how factory. He does have one about um, factory and Wilson. Wilson obviously loved Smith, but uh, they didn't seem to have much professional um, inclusion, although they did release that video on, on factory. Right, the perverted by language one, but he talks about how basically they signed the Mondays to try and um, get their own version of the fall, which in a way they did. We played, we did, I played I love the Mondays and played a few tracks the other week and there's definitely early Mondays and early Rider that has a little bit of that, but it's, it is a totally different thing. But um, yeah, he talks about indie labels are the worst and his major labels are, are interfere less and pay you more. Which, uh, he didn't stay with the, indie, with the major labels that long because he didn't sell hundreds of thousands of copies of the albums. That is the point. Um, that he, he forgets to make. Kind of have to do that if you're going to stay on Polydor. Yeah, I, I, I did. I did pick up on the bit that uh, Rob read out um, about the architecture. I was just wondering whether or not he could do it in um, with a Fred Dibder impression because that was kind of the way I was. Uh, I was reading it in my head and it'd be great to, because uh, I've probably never heard of Fred Dibner for a start and uh, hearing him doing a Lancashire accent would be a little, but that'd be brilliant. <laughs> was Dibner from Lee or is he from Bolton? Bolton. Bolton, lad, wasn't he? Let's uh, pause and have a, I'm going to drop the whole blue book idea <laughs> if you don't mind. We'll come back to that another time, as brilliant as it is and you want to have a look at it, but uh, let's, let's do a few more songs and let's see how far we get in the, uh, the allotted time we have left. Come 
16 and time to pay off. I get this job in a piss factory inspecting pipe. 40 hours, $36 a week, but it's a paycheck, Jack. It's so hot in here, hot like Sahara. You could faint from the heat, but these bitches are just too lame to understand. Too goddamn grateful to get this job, to know they're getting screwed up the ass. All these women that got no teeth and gum or cranium, and the way they suck hot sausage, but me, well, I wasn't saying too much neither. Stardust. Uh, he talks a little bit about how much he likes Shaky and Alvin, although he did go on to threaten Shaking Stevens in the Christmas song. Um, there's a he talks earlier about Patty Smith being influenced. It, obviously, lyrically, I always love her her lyrics and her approach, but um, not a huge fan of her songs. And then t- the Ramones, which always struck me as a strange one for for him. And obviously, later they got Craig Leon, who produced the Ramones debut LP, to to produce for them as well. But the Ramones are hard to dislike, though, aren't they? You know, it's it's great pop pop punk, and I'm sure you know a surly leather jacketed Smith in 1976 couldn't get enough of them. But but he really went that simple himself. I guess maybe he did. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. So we move on to Silence of the Riley. Finally, he gets a chance to have a dig at his favorite punching bag, Mark Riley. Um, the pr- problem with Riley is he started questioning um, the songs on Hex and, and Grotesque. And if it had been left up to Craig and Riley, they would end up like a mediocre Buzzcocks LP. They're not capable of writing Jay Temperance or Hip Priest. Look what they've done after me. And um, then he's, he, you know, continued with Riley about the, the fight on the dance floor in New Zealand and then had to go on telly the next day. Um, and um, get, getting out of hand, right? He wants to play um, Totally Wired six times and he has to, and he wears his cowboy hat when they play uh, Container Drivers. All stuff that he's saying he loves in Alvin Stardust, but will not accept it in his own band. Danny, where, where do we go? Where do we go with this? Well, you know, I, I um, he must have been really irritated that Mark Riley carried on being quite well known. I mean, I, he had a period, didn't he, when he wasn't doing so much in public, but you know, the Creepers, and then eventually, uh, well, he worked on that comic Oink and all of that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. And, and, and then onto the radio, and that must have really annoyed Smith. So. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not sure I necessarily like what Riley subsequently did with the Creepers and so on. I'm not sure I buy it, but um, but he clearly had something and created conflict because of that. He was able to write songs and do um, do what you need to do. 
um and um it created a particular sound in the fall um no i, I it's 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 just smith having another go at people for no particular reason it doesn't need to be like that I, I, what this chapter did for me um was the comments about peel really and just the distancing he did from john peel and uh, i think not 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 hostile at all there's no hostility but just kind of saying yeah we didn't need peel to be to to keep going and we didn't or he says we never depended on john peel for our livelihood um, mm. And I think, um, really, I think Peel's um, uh, love for the fall did have a big impact on the fall's longevity. I, I think it'd be hard to discount that. Um, um, but um, but I think I think otherwise is quite affectionate to Peel. I'm I'm really I'm less interested in the Riley stuff. Sure, we've we've dug into Riley so much, and it's, it's it's been done a million times. But yeah, the Peel the line for me was when he was on Newsnight and he said, um, "Never meet your heroes and vice versa," which I. I just love that line. Um, what do you reckon, Rob? Yeah, the, well, the Peel thing, that does seem bizarre to me. And to me, this is just another example of like, who knows maybe what went on behind the scenes, yeah, with the meeting your heroes bit. But it's just like, how can you pretend that John Peel didn't have a huge impact? Perhaps not on your like weekly income, but in terms of your legacy, like across your band's career, how could you like downplay the fact that that, you know, clearly had uh, a significant, it was a significant piece of the puzzle if nothing else anyways um but for me i i really like just on the kind of personal side the how this chapter wrapped up talking about tours and trying to do the mental kind of gymnastics of imagining what a fall tour might have been like you know from a band member's perspective spending countless hours with mark in a van or a bus this kind of thing being in you know new zealand australia different lands and then the kinds of crowds that you know and the kind of scenes that must have been going on in concerts at that time and i just like the one line where he says uh tours are very hard to get out of your head you're still very much there for weeks afterwards you have these distinctly vivid dreams about it i can see how it fucks people up your body's all over the place you get these heightened sensations and after a bit you get used to it but at the start it's an odd feeling and then talks about how modern bands he he can understand how when they get whisked around the world they just turn into zombies after the fact and i i could imagine you know leaving you know is it prestwick am i saying that correctly Prestwich, you know yeah. le leaving the small town touring around having these weird experiences and then just being back home for a few weeks after i imagine that is a pretty weird thing to try and integrate a lot, a lot of people talk about that particularly at tom york i remember talking about like just you know obviously the radio had a bit on year-long stadium and, and arena tour and then just to come back and you're just in your house and you got you, you've done it that you know there's nothing else to do for six months now you're rich <laughs> but but now you're just on your own in your house and yeah it must be so weird but i think he just kept it going he know this was probably again going back to his work ethic he's like you're off tour you don't have a holiday I mean, a bunch of people i know brother have talked about ed blaney particularly you never take it at holiday there's no day off that you just you just get back in there and carry on start writing the next album which is probably the only way you could deal with that kind of that kind of lifestyle which must be insane yeah well i mean the default were very much treated like a, a business or a like a, a football team i suppose like in uh, like with the peel thing he did kind of like the, the distance and it. it was like a, it's a business acquaintance it's somebody that i know like you know don't know him dead well uh but he did not like to give credit to uh anyone 
anyone else really for uh, well he, he was very hesitant to um, and you know the, the the competitive nature of the fall were you know in interviews very rarely have anything nice to say about um, a lot of bands just claim not to know who they were at times even though he just played with them um, so yeah it's it's all part of his psychology and, and, and his, his way of running things and uh, you know let's face it kept it going for so long you know it, it must have worked uh, but with, with the Peel thing about oh yeah we, you know, we weren't dependent dependent upon him. Um, it's got to be said, uh, a lot of the stuff that the fall did after Peel died, I didn't get to hear because I wasn't hearing it on Peel, and uh, you know, the replacements for Peel were a little bit weak. Well, what he what he will have known but won't have lived through is that perspective. I was the same, right? So yeah, you were hearing fall songs all the time, and so many great bands because Peel was an institution. It's not like you couldn't find that music. It's just we didn't have that person who then was just here you know and Riley and, and Lara as a Ratcliffe and Riley tried a little bit to be that kind of thing before they went to the breakfast show and uh, and, and other people tried it along the way but um yeah we, we uh kind of lost that and never never got it back unfortunately mm. I suppose from Mark's point of view though there, there is of course a danger in becoming too closely associated with with one individual in the way that potentially it could have happened with Peel uh, well, did happen to pit with Peel to an extent. That that must be that must be a difficult thing to negotiate because he, he clearly he's not hostile to Peel at all. He actually seems to you know be fairly speak really warm about warmly about him. But you can't let yourself be too closely associated. You go down when they go down. You go up when they go up, and it's that can't be great, can it? But um, so you understand why he's done it, I think. But yeah. uh, I think he protests too much. Well, I mean, Peel's on one of the albums. It was Middle Class Revolt, where he, there's just an interview with Peel on it. It's like you're not. Distance yourself that much, really, uh, <laughs> and uh, they, and there's True. those nice scenes of when they played. I think Peel's fiftieth was it, where there's some pictures of them all together smiling, and they played. Um, Subterranean, yeah, yeah, yeah. They played um, for his, his party. He goes on it in chapter ten. Operation Caveman talks. He does say hex. You know, again, you imagine he doesn't want to talk too much about hex, but he does get nailed in and says he's proud of it. And he's built something that you can immerse yourself in, uh, like a good book. Get a couple of beers and listen to to Hex or something, unlike Costello and Spanda Valley, who uh, are mired in the shit of their times. But um, then, yeah, then he says there's no need to to go and exhume it. There's no need to remaster it. There's no need to do anything else. It's there if you want to revisit it. Um, but he couldn't stop. And this is the thing, we get again, we've talked a lot about the room to live that came straight after. And, the, and then how that was almost deliberate sabotage. But he says he could, he, I had to pay the bills. and I, But but on top of that, I wanted to get the group to play out of time. So it's not like he didn't make Hex 2. He deliberately went against it. Um, yeah, anyone anything to say on that? Yeah, I, w- I was going to pick up on that point where, he, where um, because I'm interested in the fact that pretty much throughout the well, ever since he made Hex and and you know up till the end, he always spoke well of Hex itself as a record. Um, I mean, obviously, the latest album was always the best, but he always seemed to hold up Hex as, you know, maybe the, the a pinnacle or one of the pinnacles. And that, for for a, a, a person and a, a group that was always about the present, it's interesting that, nonetheless, he was able to see that record as 
as a particular achievement. I mean, it's not necessarily my favorite one, but you'd, you'd have to say it's there as, as, as um, a lot of people would say it's the greatest. It's got to be up there. But I, I was interested in, well, he was talking about, I'm trying to get the group to play out of time. It's very cyclic. I try to do the same thing with Reformation, taking groups out of their comfort zone and so on, getting them to think about timing in a distorted way. And when I when I read Paul Hanley's book, Have a Bleeding Guess About Hex, um, Paul Hanley talks about this kind of messing with time thing as well. So it, I think that absolutely holds together as, as a comment there. And, and I don't think I'd noticed it until I read Paul Hanley's book and then reread this. I just thought, yeah, actually, there you go. Um, that, that is something that he was doing with Hex and that you wouldn't necessarily notice until until you, you your attention's drawn to it. Because he does it with the songs, he does it with the subject of the songs. I think so. And I think it makes sense because he's coming from that from the lyrical and literature perspective, you know, where he, he doesn't want, he wants them to fit around his ideas rather than him shoehorning. And you see where it goes the other way, something like Sport Victorian Child, which is very tight. And he's just shoehorning word after word and line into that structure. And as, as good as it sounds, I don't think that's what he wanted. But um, I guess the, um, the, the idea of Hex being that statement, um, and I think it was, again, Ed Blaney on El Brother was talking about how he was paid, he was offered stacks of cash, even when he was down on his luck to go and play the entirety of Hex to do these kind of um, you know festivals where you play it back back Ryder just actually here in, here now they're doing I think going blank again on one day and then nowhere the day after it's uh, if you're a fan I'm sure it's good but yeah I don't think Smith's integrity would have let him take that 20 grand to to go play Hex from front to back I think I think the fall did basically one kind of retro concert, didn't they? Which later on, um, well, it wasn't just one album, but they they did did it once, and clearly he was on his uppers at the time. You know, okay. money at some point, so they did it once. They never did it again. Um, the the other thing about this chapter is this is where that phrase "Mein camp for the Hollyoaks generation" appears, <laughs> okay. which I th- what I'm not sure what that means, but it's a nice phrase. <laughs> but when MES was asked about this, uh, he said it was all Austin Collings' work. So. <laughs> who knows it's a good line isn't it uh, thrown away uh, bringing geography into the timepiece here it was interesting to me that it mentioned that uh part of hex was recorded in iceland yeah, yeah. i'd be interested to know like how that happened because it seems like a lot of work to get there at that time to go you know do a few songs for for the piece of the album maybe you guys know a bit more about that the yeah, uh they did a um they did a few gigs there i think as well didn't they and um it's all talked about in paul hanley's book okay so, yeah maybe so hanley's more... book is the best bet for that because he goes into it in detail. It was essentially organized by the dude who was at Aina, who was in the Sugar Cubes. Yeah. He was yeah. basically the you know, the the core of that whole scene of like 20 people. Yeah, it was, it was actually a, a really brilliant story about the, the studio inside a cave and all of this magical oh, and mystical stuff that went on. Yeah, we, we should probably do um, both the Hanley's books if, if this uh, format is something that people like. We can get into those. Well, well, one I'll thing have... that Paul Hanley does point out is that it wasn't literally a lava cave. It was sure. actually the greatest recording studio in Iceland where the classic orchestras played and all of this yeah, so, yeah, yeah. there's a bit of mythology a bit like the cinema the abandoned cinema that actually again was a major recording studio yeah there's a little bit I, of myth making there i'll have to look into that book then because i it did mention oh we played gigs and that spawned bjork and the sugar cubes and i was like i was interested in that so i googled that and i couldn't find any result on google mentioning anything about the fall or <laughs> mark's influence on bjork or the early days of the sugar cubes so i 
I'm sure then it is justified in some way, but I thought he's not taking credit for Bjork here, but to say that that tour is what spawned Bjork and the Sugar Cubes, that's interesting. So so they'd already had, so Bjork, even before the Sugar Cubes had that, I think it's Glinglo band that she, so so Mm -hmm. she was already, she's pretty young at that time, I guess, but she was still on the scene. But Einar, I think I'm saying his name right, is a bit older. And so he was kind of the, he was the center of all that, as far as I understand. They were all part of the same scene and they would all have gone to those four gigs. Uh, I did see something by somebody related to the the journalist who followed them over there, who sadly died recently, who said that um, he was stood next to Bjork, who said, oh, I don't like this. So influence is a difficult one, but they would have been there. Anything to add, Alistair? Uh, Well, you're getting into the cycle for sort of um, topics again in in this uh, chapter. We've gone into about journalists, uh, reviewing uh, reissues of Hex, and he's going, they're just full of shit, because first time round, they were slagging it off. Yeah, yeah. So that a bit amused me in, you know, getting into the uh, Alex Higgins anecdotes, uh, all the important stuff. Well, I'm liking liking cats. Yeah, exactly. But I think the thing about Best, it's a bit on the nose. I'm George Best, I'm Hurricane Higgins, I'm Jimmy White. You know, it is him painting himself as the renegade, a man who saw trouble, which there's some truth in it as well, you know, but um, that definitely is a little bit. It's it's like the, the, the Teddy Burst story, isn't it? Like, you know, yeah, which was who was that? That that'd have been written like a hundred years ago about Kafka. Kafka, is it? Yeah, yeah. Which is Stuart probably not Lee even true, up. then. Yeah, because yeah, it it's not true. It? Stuart, no. Stuart Lee made that up, and it is reminiscent of a story told about Kafka. And also, there's a similar sequence in the film Amelie as well. Okay, it, it didn't. Stuart Lee has admitted. We we all suspected it was made up. Um, uh, but Stuart Lee's admitted it on the O Brother. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah, but it's a bit of a trope, isn't it? But it paints Mark as a as the old softy we want to believe he is uh we we get back onto the the um the chapter called the wife you know he talks a little bit like you said earlier you know he had um several of his wives and girlfriends in and around the band not least of all bricks and eleni um, he does have a bit of a dig at Bricks for still keeping the Smith name. Bricks start Smith. I remember when I saw her on Gox Fashion Show for the first time. I didn't know she was on it, and I was talking about this. That's she was in the fall. And I was like, what? So what? What? what so, what? <laughs> um, but he does. You know, he, he says he respects um, the wife in the uh, in the old fashioned way, and you know, um, hence the wife. Yeah, the, the wife. Her indoors. Is, uh, we are she no longer able to say exactly. Um, he does have a bit of a go on about dressing smartly, not look, not looking like a demic. Get down to, to a Primark. It's all very well if you're on the piss in Camden, but imagine doing Camden. But imagine doing business work with a burg dressed like a vagrant. Um, nice turn of phrase. Ezra would have, uh, if, if Ezra was here, he would have just been trotting those out um, line after line. How great the German education system. Rob McLeod knows a little bit about that uh, just like the Scottish and they're taught properly um, and how he went to do an L that's left after six weeks because the teacher had never heard of Norman Mailer or, or Nietzsche uh, so, so he jacked it in. It's quite a lot of uh, bits and bobs in here. There's, there's and, a couple of points where he says uh, women are more in tune with rhythms than men, which seems like a wild generalisation. 
if there if there ever was one. And yeah. also, but although it's interesting about his attitude to women, I suppose, and and also the point where he says it's incorrect to say bricks smooth the rough edges of the band because that is something that people say. And actually, if you look at it, they did get a lot smoother after she left. In fact, so that was probably right. Yeah, it was a, it was a trajectory, right? Although there was definitely a switch, as he says, after perverted and um, oh yeah, wonderful and frightening. Obviously, like this nations is a big change, but it then did continue way into like the dead bush era with some really smooth um kind of stuff yeah my main note for this brennan you've already stolen my thunder is just that line germany has probably the greatest educa- education system i have ever come across and uh i think you and i could take an hour to unpack that through our nerdy school lens not so sure i agree with that we did, we did but... five, you did five years there i think six years five years five. there and then uh four and a half going on five years in a german school abroad as well it's got they do a lot of things right but as far as the greatest education system i've ever come across even the pisa school uh analysis would not agree that they are the greatest it is somewhat of a traditionalist mindset we shall say but anything else john which which he does like it yeah um, yeah, the one thing that I did find interesting when he's talking about bricks, and again, I don't know all the ins and outs of their relationship. And I, I know that it, it might be complicated. If you could sum, summarize it with one word, the relationship was complicated. Uh, but I do like, um, I, and I couldn't totally tell if he was, this was part of him wanting people to be easier on her or whatever, but I like the line where he just said, uh, why do they refer to Brooks's past in current interviews? Like as though that is the only, you know, piece of her history that is relevant or or something like that and yeah I, I think i do kind of like that idea of like yeah of course you know it might be what she is most famous for but if you're talking to her a few decades on yeah that's a piece of her that's still rolling around in there but you know she is a human with a, a current life as well mm. if you if you read her book she she obviously spends a good chunk of time in the fall but she does really dig into the you know she makes the case that she's done other things of interest and it's actually a really it's a really cool book and she was great for the band as we've talked about many many times but god bless her it must have been an absolute fucking nightmare living with that man (laughs) i think the interesting thing about that is actually how much respect they seem to keep for each other i'm going to make a point in a second about that but um they they didn't really slag each other off in public that often um up until the point she wrote that book and then it changed and he got notably sour and more hostile towards her then which perhaps is predictable. But up until that point, they they seemed to maintain that connection still, you know? They they didn't um they 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 abstained from being overtly horrible to each other in public anyway. So and that's so. that's notable, I think. Yeah. I did but I quite liked in this chapter was uh, the bit where he was going on about um why he fiddles around with, with the amps on stage. And I honestly thought it was just to genuinely annoy the band members. But apparently not. Um, quote, uh, I fiddle around with the amps because it needs to be done. There you go. <laughs> Hanley's expressed multiple times on the Over the Podcast that he definitely feels it was just a power play from Smith to put people in their place. And then there's the story about the fake kick drum mic and all of that stuff. Yeah. They would they would make fake ones. Um, just imagine being a sound man and not knowing what you're in for. Just <laughs> he's, t- he's turned the bass amp off <laughs> because it needs to be done as it needs <laughs> to be done. 
So he goes on a little bit about how he'd be a good dad, except for leaving his child completely unattended to be roasted in front of the fire. So probably for the best that he didn't bring anybody into the world. Um, then, yeah, if we get on to chapter 12, he does kind of, um, this is another one that's kind of all over the place, really. It's not, uh, it's, <laughs> I couldn't really see a theme in this other than he talks a bit about bricks and he's, he's you know, kind of shits on how a privileged background and most of them end up still end up shooting up and, and wasting those opportunities and how he built himself up from nothing. And, you know, he voted Tory unashamedly. And uh, that was that was the worst thing you could do as a working class person in the, in the eyes of the journos because um, you know you're supposed to act in a certain way. And he gets back to one of his favourite themes of how the worst kind of society is that that's run by the sanitised middle mass, the middle class. But all in all, it's a bit of a shit show this chapter. Yeah, it's a bit about um, perverted by language, and this is still 1983 at this point. He hasn't gone that <laughs> far down his history, um, uh, being a suburb urban album as opposed to grotesque in the previous chapter which he describes as a very english album both of which are probably possibly true in some respects but yeah it, we're, we're not getting themes now are we so no although one thing we do like in terms of you you've said several times danny how we're doing our podcast wrong and he he backs up on, on this he's like i don't even like the word era it's a very mojo word mojo exactly. of course being the classic rock magazine I was going to ask you all about that, Brendan. I was going to ask you all about it. Well, he's right, isn't he, in a way? Danny's right. We should just do it endless. Just every week we should choose another eight songs and decide which one's best. And of course, because they, you, you must get them all. And, and yeah, he's right. Chopping things up and looking back is the old nostalgia. Look back bores. But then again, my fucking podcasts are piss off. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and then he talks about uh, you know the the covers the of the albums. But this is the bit in the in, in the here that I do like. He talks about the album covers and how he really you know the, especially the Klaus Kasken called ones of wonderful and frightening, perfect by language, um, and the terrible ones of light user and especially Reformation. I mean Reformation, the American cover, <laughs> just like yeah. He said, what's he say? It looks like a poxy school picture or a prison polar Polaroid taken from the family back home by the screws who've who've uh, loosened up a bit after a couple of christmas camps yeah say. yeah thanks for coming along rob appreciate you giving us your time as an yeah, cheers, wizard much, um, much appreciate being able to be involved guys thanks for the invitation and learned a lot just sitting with sitting with you folks today take care and see you right. uh the curse of the hundo see you on the curse of the hundo first drop of juice is there for her to sit honey that's when she back off and just Niggas want it free, they dogs drink my fist. Sex style! Niggas want it free, they dogs drink my fist. Sex style! Niggas want it free, they dogs drink my fist. You want freestyle? That's right, the style is free. Niggas suck my dick and they girls drink my pee. I'm on some mess in them shit you can't get with Pull your panties down on stage and watch you sweat quick Suckers back to pull they style is transsexual Lesbians dance with the funky heterosexual I gave all that
Devil's Compass. Um, there's a bit about Rolls West in there, isn't there? This is the Slade thing. So he refers to a uh, he refers to a, a musician he knows who's been working writing letters to Rolls West, and she wants to take it further. So I googled it, and it's the one of the recent bass players from Slade who I don't know if they actually got married in the end, but wanted to get married to Rose West. Oh, um, lovely, lovely wow. stuff. It's- <laughs> it's always nice to hear romance stories, yeah. Uh, he, well, but he also had a bit where he, he, he referred to the, the bunny men as, as gonks. <laughs> um, more Death of the Landlords, more stuff about journalists, Birchill, Parsons, like Sam Fox reviewing his re- record and saying it sounds like yodeling. Uh, it goes on a bit about Luciani. He didn't bother to listen to what I was saying. Well, I've been doing some work on Luciani for the last few months. And to be honest, Mark, you didn't make it easy for them. <laughs> it, it is... <laughs> About six pages of papal stuff and then about 20 minutes of his dreams. <laughs> um, so, come on. But he does go on about Libarian respect for the artist and, and you know, it's interesting that he got into that scene via Bricks and Michael Clark and Libarian and saying, like, they were real artists. And and that kind of, you know, that you, you, you want that attitude from him. You don't know if you're going to get it. You don't know if he's going to be dismissive of people from this this area of the art or the counterculture. But no, he saw them as artists who believed in their the way they they live their life and 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 uh, produce their art and um i think that was pretty insightful i always wondered like um whether relationship michael clark ever soured because after curious orange you, you uh, bricks went and i guess she was the kind of main reason that they were connected but at that point i, I kind of wondered why nothing else happened well um michael clark did turn up post the brownies breakup on stage um when uh for that first gig i think uh, after that okay. break so i think the friendship continued it will have gone up and down over time i think inevitably i'm sure they had their difficult moments and there was an interview with them both in one of those kind of i forget which magazine it was one of those magazines we're best mates kind of columns okay. that they, you know one of those and they do talk about it then so he popped up later on yeah yeah but yeah it's interesting relationships he had with these people yeah he then skims over friends experiment seminal live curious orange and um, yeah, that's it. Friends, Curious Orange and Seminal Live, he skips over in like a sentence and talks yeah. about setting up Cog Sinister and how, you know, it ran its course quickly. I think they only put out two singles in a compilation that weren't fall related. 
Um, it goes on about working with Pete Waterman. Um, Who he talks very warmly about, yeah. Yeah, which is always interesting. I know that the KLF, Bill Drummond, worked with, with Waterman as well. Uh, very interesting, especially when, when they have that meeting and it's not going well, so they bring in like 10 people to write the hook for his song and then he says uh, they have a big final final um kind of meeting in this his room and he says uh, if you carry on like this you'll all be fired because you're talking to Marky e. Smith and he can do whatever he wants the single went nowhere of course but I respected him for that yeah. Anything to add here, uh, Al? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a real shame that uh, Curious Orange was never sort of like filmed like the performance. Uh, it's a, a big gap in the, the sort of history of the fall, I suppose. But I, I did notice uh, Max saying that those who did hook into the experience, uh, those who did hook into it, experienced something special. And, you know, I, I didn't know Mr. Tumble was in it, but uh, it would have been great. Good reference, CBeebies. Um, yeah, it, it, it was very much in line with him not recording Luciani and Curious Orange in high def and putting it out on DVD and all of that stuff. But yeah, it does seem very sad that we don't have that documentation. Scratch your video tape would have been nice. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of clips of Luciani, right, here and there and videos. And, and, and there's obviously a live audio of, of Curious Orange and pictures and bits. But um, get the impression that full video does exist somewhere but i i suspect that the rights to it are not okay. easy to sort out oh. it's one of the reasons why because the the name of the ballet was i am curious orange with a c and orange and, and then the album was curious with a k so i suspect that there's some rights dispute somewhere in there yeah because it's a it's a mucky film originally the uh the title yeah so th so then he moves up to edinburgh and again a lot of this stuff we've we've talked about a lot before he lives frugally in libraries reading psychiatric and law files and taking nips from his hip flask it's all very it's all very civilized unlike the libraries of england which were is full of repressed stormtroopers the worst kind <laughs> uh talks about everyone in uh, edinburgh is um spiking it up in the 20s and the grandfathers with six kids by the time they're 40 but he's still better than england in every way um yeah a lot of this is stuff we've talked about lots before right there's an interesting yeah, bit in here about um train spotting isn't there he has seems to have a lot of time for irving welsh and and that's interesting in itself yeah because it's kind of uh it's it's a bit more mainstream and on the nose that you would think than smith would be in to, but yeah, he seems to have a lot more respect than he does for Bono. Keeps saying to Ben and Steve, "You're getting the same money as Franz Ferdinand." They can't, they couldn't understand why they weren't playing stadiums. And he was trying to point out, well, you, you're doing something you want to do and you're getting the same money as Bono. I don't know if those, if that's strictly true, but um, <laughs> the yeah, best player. <laughs> The, the, the quote as well where it's uh, I couldn't have stuck around and listened to all that Manchester bollocks and, and you know uh, referring to moving away to Edinburgh but yeah then it, you know like a couple of years later he's turning out stuff that absolutely reeks of Manchester bollocks um, yeah and then has to go on tour it all, all the middle class with all infotainment scan all that year it's like it's not massively different from as we've said before what the Mondays were doing or North Side or any of those definitely a bit of bagginess to it yeah he, he uh, ruse the idea that he could have a nice big house in Cheshire and he's Todd looking forward to the gardener coming around and be dead at 45 well he did at least uh, eke it out to 60 um and, and how he liked the Mersey beat over the Nuggets and the Lars over the Mondays great band though 
But yeah, I'm not sure. Um, maybe we should zip through these last few chapters because, again, don't know if any stop me. Um, stop me if you've heard this one before. Uh, hard as nails, speed good, heroin bad. Cave bad, Pete Doherty fooling himself. Um, don't give Mark the whiskey before he goes on stage. Um, and uh, taking too many E's makes you start seeing chickens. Oh, yeah. I think my favourite quote from this one was the 99.9% of people with a healthy diet will eventually die. Yeah. Well, what about the other 0.1? I know. Is by aliens or something? Exactly. It's a good... Well, there's a, there's a margin of error of 3 to 4%. So <laughs> it's, um, there's, there's not a huge amount to say about this chapter, I don't think. I, in fact, we, we start to lose a bit of steam, I think, at this point. But um, he de- this is where he denies being influenced by Burroughs. He clearly enjoys reading Burroughs, but not influenced yeah. by what so he says. And then he says, I'm one of the 3% who was made to take speed. There you go. That seems yeah. a very precise number. Exactly. And I don't think his doctor would have agreed with him, to be honest. Um, I do like the bit where he talks about Alan Wise. It's not fall related at all, but Alan Wise he goes from promoting the fall and to imagine the fall thinking he's going to have a nice, uh, quiet time on a tour with Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. And um, yeah, he talks about uh, a little bit about how you can't fake authenticity, cites Johnny Cash and Link Ray and Iggy Pop. Um, then, yeah, we're up to 16, where he's working in UB40's um, studio and recording the infotainment scan. Has a dig at George Formby and the Sleaford Mods. This, this, is, this has got one of the great lines in it. If, if you're going to play it out of tune, then play it out of tune properly. Shall that I, was my favourite. That was brilliant. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he goes bankrupt because of Trevor... Travel long. Um, this allegedly. is allegedly, yeah, allegedly <laughs> bankruptcy as consultancy fees. And he did say he let it slide. And he has to go over to his mum's to borrow some tins of soup, which is the levitate era. Which uh, I was surprised when I put the poll out a few weeks ago about how, whether Reformation was the worst album. And I've just got such a soft spot for levitate. And I, I think I remember Danny. That was first time I heard you on, on Steve's um, thing. Right? It's a, it's a it's a very charming album, but. Um, yeah, then then we get to um, the brownies, the end of the era, and um, he gets arrested for putting his cigs out on Julia's trainer, and gets put in prison. His head's getting shaved, and he's being sent off to Rikers Island, and then all of a sudden he's out and he's scrounging for cig butts around the World Trade Center. Kind of said the strands have fallen apart at this point a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, clearly he was in a difficult place at this point which comes through i think in what he's trying to self-justify here i think absolutely and, uh, yeah and um you know it, it was clearly horrible so yeah. <laughs> he, t- he tells uh, a good story which avoids all of the actual bad stuff yeah. um i imagine this was not pleasant for anybody involved at all um but uh george michael got arrested on the same day and so nobody actually found out about smith <laughs> so he's he's sent to bury sent to bury to, to dry out and um, has to persuade the people that drinking five cans of Halston pills isn't the same as drinking five cans of special brew so he's okay and, <laughs> and uh continues yeah, building mean- when this was all happening, I, those of us who were just watching it, going, "Ah, oh, what?" Yeah. Oh, you know, it was like the end of the end of days, you know. And it's 
So he, the way he writes about it, you just kind of think, oh, come on. He's, he was, it was worse than he's making out here, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, this is, this is a very much a sanitized and, um, Mark the cheeky chappy kind of version of what was, yes, end of days kind of uh, stuff. But, you know, then we get on to, we're, we're at the end here. This is basically where he's at. Although we just skip over the next nine albums <laughs> without, without a single mention of of um, really country on the click, really talk about heads roll, fantastic albums. Doesn't doesn't um, middle class revolt doesn't even get the name mentioned? I don't think in the book. Um, but you know he talks about pulling out of the shitter. He's like Ferguson picking a team. Um, um, goes on more about football, Gaza, the middle class. This is basically summarizing. He's chapter just summarizes the earlier parts of the book more and more, and it, and it is spinning its wheels a little bit. But uh, it is funny when he brings over the the um, the dudes as he calls them, Presley and, and Co. And um, they are uh, they arrive during the World Cup where everybody is pissed up and half naked and they say is this normal as fat blokes on heater screaming Rooney at them <laughs> yeah I, it, what all the football stuff goes over my head in this in this chapter um he talks a bit about having the music on final score and all of that which is kind of nice yeah. he's remarkably kind to another person he's remarkably kind to Michael Bracewell there was a there, there's that notorious interview with him which is a car crash of an interview but actually he seems to have quite a lot of time for michael bracewell so there you go yeah it's quite an interesting uh interview and i think mark in that is playing up his character absolutely a little bit yeah absolutely. yeah yeah but it's uh it's fun so yeah he goes on a bit more about football and how he used yeah, to go down quite the quite a lot of football who's describing the fa as being uh, all expensive uh fruits and nice clean sausages exactly oh it goes on behind <laughs> those closed doors Kicker, and uh, I did like the way he describes his Saturdays. Uh, is his holy day, his day off? So he gets he gets up at twelve and starts drinking. Unless listens to records and drinks for the entire day. Although I do imagine that's what Tuesday and Wednesday looks like as well. Never um, infinity. You start thinking about Link Rare. You still listen to him on a Saturday. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Um, as I go to Tony Blair and Princess Diana and the uh, the the nineties. Um, but at least he knows that Country on the Click was good. It is a great yeah. album. Um, finishes up saying something like the results are evident in heightened awareness. If you don't eat for a few days or if you've been on a bender, you see things differently and not always in an obvious way. I thought that was a nice way to finish. True. Yes. Well, we, uh, we did it. We did it. And, uh, wow. Well, thank you very much for sticking with it, Danny and uh, Alistair. We lost some people, some good people along the way. Casualties along the way, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's maybe if we give it a few months and if anybody's up for maybe tackling one of the others uh we have to do the blue book we have to do the blue book. we can do we'll do the blue book when we do one of the shorter ones um <laughs> we'll, we'll fit it in there but uh, yeah absolutely i got my notes i love it love the uh the blue book it's a brilliant uh, piece of art but we will find time so 
Well, thanks very much, Danny. And uh, nice to have you. Um, Hopefully you've not been scurried away from coming back at some point in the future. No, no, I'll happily come back. Brilliant. And Alistair, I shall see you next week for a regular episode. Just look at that limey's piss. (laughs) Bye. Sex style! For two long years my head hurt bad So the doctor checked me and he shook his head He said, I'm sorry to tell you But your body's outlived your brain He said, I know this doctor in New York, son And he'll fix you right up with a brand new one So the head doctor met me when I stepped down off of the train He said, we had this bank robber killed last night His body shot, but his brain's all right I'll give you a transplant, boy, and you'll be okay I got my new brain in and I was feeling great. I went right back to Nashville with no headache, but something strange happened when I walked in the bank one day. I said, stick them up, everybody, I'm robbing this place. Drop all of your money in my guitar case. Don't nobody move and don't nobody reach for that door. See, isn't that right? I want some, I want some. Red magic. Say it's time!